0: Welcome to Political O.D. episode 33. Uh, we're going to set to one side the courtroom battles between uh, Vardy and Rooney and uh, keep things local because uh, Peter André's private parts, I'm sure, are no interest to anyone listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. There are more serious issues. Let's start with the election, Ola. uh. Oh, okay, I was I was primed
1: and ready to talk about uh, Peter Andre's private parts, but if you insist, we'll talk about the Northern Ireland election.
0: Yeah, I'll insist on that. It's a week on. I think one of the things we can say there was there was an initial call of seismic change, uh, led largely by Sinn Fein, which really was a balloon that filled and got popped quite quickly in the day or so after the election results. Really came through, I guess, after the transfers and all the uh, numbers were counted? I
1: think, yes, there was that initial kind of um, burst of misleading headlines, things about Sinn Fein, even taking power in in Northern Ireland off unionists. And then people stepped back and looked at the figures a bit more calmly. And in actual fact, you know, Sinn Fein, while they perhaps did a bit better than maybe we were expecting, in that their vote didn't fall back. certainly were more or less where they were in 2017, maybe a a small bit up. They stayed in the same number of seats. Unionism was down a little bit, as you would have predicted, because of um, the the protocol and other issues uh, that unionism has had. But again, it wasn't such a seismic uh, shift as the the papers and and some other uh, media were trying to portray.
0: Yeah, I think also uh, when you say that Sinn Féin's vote was slightly up. I think you have to look at that as it was slightly up at the expense of the SDLP uh, and indeed nationalism overall, because the total proportion of votes for nationalism, if you take the SDLP and, and to, um, Sinn Féin together, uh, they, it went slightly down. So you know, Sinn Féin's great victory can only be expensive others. So good for Sinn Féin, not so much for the nationalist project.
1: Yes, and I don't think it brings a border poll or certainly an all-Ireland state any closer because actually opinion hasn't shifted on that uh, one iota. And as you say, the, the nationalist vote has remained almost unchanged for many decades now. The SDLP were the election's main losers. They had a fairly catastrophic showing and column eastwood uh, decided to blame that on the dup and say that it was down to their sort of trying to freeze out a nationalist first minister which was absolute nonsense from 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 several standpoints but you know that this idea that Sinn fein have been borrowing the sdlp's votes it might comfort column and other you know constitutional nationalist politicians but it, it's not really worked out like that over a long number of years and you know it didn't quite work like out like that in North Belfast where the SDLP decided to stand aside for Sinn Féin in the general election and they didn't get their their votes back and one of their most prominent uh,
0: politicians the uh, Nicola Mallon was the casualty of that. The deputy leader indeed.
1: Indeed yeah.
0: You know The, the one thing about the campaign because it was fairly low-key in the end it wasn't really a full battle on, Uh, but the one common thread throughout was that all the four parties of the executive, aside from the DUP, all attacked the DUP. I mean, the DUP seemed to be to blame for absolutely everything, despite the fact that those five parties on and off have basically been the government uh, for the past 20 years, you know, at times playing a bigger part than other times, but nevertheless, any success or failure of the Northern Ireland Executive, and I've really struggled to think of a significant success of the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive, other than simply being there for just over 20 years. All of that lies at the feet of the five parties together.
1: Yes, I've I've been very critical of the DUP over the years. I've been very critical about their conduct really in the lead up to the Northern Ireland protocol at, at, at the time when they, they put together the confidence and supply arrangement with uh, the Conservatives, with Theresa May's government and everything else. But I think in the circumstances, and I mean, I, I view the protocol as the biggest challenge that unionism has faced for many years. I think you probably do as well. Uh, and we've been kind of critiquing Protocol, the backstop, and all its predecessors throughout this process. And it was a disappointment to me that rather than highlighting that issue in this election, but actually the, the DUP were guilty of it as well because they wanted to make it about Sinn Fein and the border poll, but particularly the Ulster Unionists decided to basically park that issue and attack the DUP instead. Um, because you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a great believer in, in unionist unity or anything like that, insofar as I don't think that there should be one unionist party. And I think that there should be sort of various varieties of unionism on the ballot paper. But the the Ulster Unionists needed to talk to voters about this, about this issue uh, above all else at, at, at this election. And they, they, they didn't do that. They kind of relegated it. To the back seat, as if this was just something
0: yeah.
1: um, in in the background, and I think that was
0: ultimately ultimately a mistake. I think the three parties that did well in this election, or, or if you like, particularly well in this election, from their own perspective, uh, would be Sinn Féin, who kept a fairly simple message that Michelle O'Neill will be first minister. Let's you know give us enough votes to to make it almost impossible for anyone to not have Michelle O'Neill as First Minister. I think that had a resonance within nationalism. It had resonance. So I think, I think their campaign was successful by getting that message through. They can play at once. I haven't heard it said that she won't be First Minister since the election. I think that's quite interesting. I, I imagine she would be if the Assembly gets up and running. Um, I don't know what they do next time because that having been done, they can't run it again. It's not going to be an issue uh, ever again after this election. That one's sort of run. I think the Alliance Party uh, did pretty well, uh, obviously. I think their vote is settling. Uh, I don't think there was a surge. Uh, If there was a surge, uh, you would have seen the Alliance Party reach the heights that Naomi Long did in the European election in 2017. Uh, was it 2017 or t- yeah 2017 mm-hmm. um, when in fact uh, they lost five percent of, of uh, down on, on on that particular vote and uh, from about 18 percent down to about uh, 13 13 somewhat percent um, so I think that vote is settling uh, in but she nevertheless did well and they did well by saying uh, you know we want to get back to work we don't want to deal with border polls or protocol or any of these other issues we just want to deal with the day to day issues. Uh, I think that's not entirely true because they talk of little else other than Brexit, uh, how the DUP are awful people. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, th- there was a fairly clear leadership position. The other party that did well, albeit it wasn't translated into seats, was Jim Allister, who pulled the TUV vote back up to close to what he got in the European elections in, in 2017, around 65,000 votes. And so I think those three parties... Did well because they were quite clear in what they wanted to do. The SDLP and the Austria Unionists were so muddled, to a certain extent, echoing what the Alliance Party was saying, that a lot of people from both their parties were quite comfortable then in voting and transferring to the Alliance Party, which probably didn't do them any favors in the final analysis, particularly the SDLP. And the DUP did okay. Given that with every you know, with practically every other political party having a go at them, they still came in pretty close to the number of seats they had last time. You know, the three parties with clear messages did well. The DUP had a clearer message than others. I mean, I think a lot of people made a lot of point. You, know, I heard on radio coming up, particularly in the aftermath, that about you, know, they were going to stand up against the protocol and then people say, well they didn't say they weren't going to you know take their seats in, in the executive if, if the protocol wasn't sorted but actually they'd said that throughout. Maybe that argument got a bit lost in everything else, but they had been quite clear they would not go back into the executive if the protocol wasn't dealt with. So I don't know why people are suddenly jumping up and down saying you can't do that because I'm pretty clear they can. Yeah,
1: I think that was fairly well known uh, as, as the, the campaign went on, particularly because it was something that was actually highlighted and questioned by both the other parties and the media as well. So sure. I mean, the, the, um, most of the television debates, I think, sort of uh, coincided with the uh, big football matches. So I only yes, saw sure. the, <laughs> the edited highlights, but it seemed to me that that was the focus of a lot of um, of the questioning was whether the DUP would go back into the executive, whether it would yeah. nominate a deputy first minister, whether its stance and coming out of the executive in the first place was coherent and everything else. So I don't think that you can argue that the public didn't appreciate that, didn't appreciate that issue. What I will say is, again, uh, although the election... Um, was sort of tacitly all about the protocol. The DUP didn't make such a fuss about the protocol as you might have thought that they would have. No, no. It, it was about Sinn Féin and the destruction of Northern Ireland and a um, border poll. I mean, I'm not sure. I suppose that there was a kind of almost celebratory tone in the end from the DUP in that they're. Seats didn't go down as, as far as maybe some people anticipated, or that it looked at the start of uh, the poll. Possibly, um, as well, you know, you, you actually find that some of their candidates were more transfer uh, transfer friendly than than the TUV. Because yeah. had the TUV been in a pure um, proportional system rather than sort of single transferable votes, where it's a little more volatile, they would have had quite a healthy representation in, in this assembly if you'd sort of been working off list systems and that kind of thing yeah, yeah. they can feel hard done by but i suppose that's we, we've got that system of government precisely to freeze people like the the tuv out I, I i think that that was probably a decision that was that was made um in all uh with, with open eyes by uh by people who want to to sort of um, massage Northern Ireland politics in a, cer- in, in a certain direction. We're, we're grossly over governed and there's no two ways about that. But just to you know maintain the same system, but to keep trimming down seats from six to five to four is quite a blunt instrument to use to try and put that right yeah. um, when you're you know setting yourself up as, as a proportional system and it's got proportional elements, but it's not. purely proportional system so we've kind of fallen in between there in in terms of alliance i do think that there's a kind of a dishonesty about the alliance project at the moment because it is styled as if it's all about day-to-day issues as if they're the the adults in the room worrying about these things and coming up with policies about these things while the rest are, are are uh are, are worried about more kind of purely ideological things and, and constitutional issues. First of all, I mean, that, that's to, to kind of say that you should have no view on what nation state you want to be part of is fundamentally a nonsense in the first place. But Alliance has become uh, much more ideological, particularly since Brexit, because it has made the decision very consciously that if Northern Ireland is to change it, it, it's, it's going to stay closely tied to the European Union at the expense of its links to Great Britain. And it doesn't mind if that comes at a certain economic cost, certainly in the short term anyway, I suppose it would argue that eventually that will turn itself round. It doesn't mind if it comes at the expense of a certain amount of stability because the Alliance Party is ideologically bound to the EU project and to internationalism uh, and all of these kind of airy ideas. To, so to sort of present itself as uniquely practical um, in the way that it does to, to voters in Northern Ireland. And I think that's the message that actually resonated with them rather than the
0: kind of pro-EU thing yeah. or whatever else. I think
1: that's dishonest.
0: Uh, on the Nolan show last night, this has been recorded on Thursday, uh, the 12th of May. Sorshi Eastwood was on with Edwin Poots. Uh, well, there were others as well. But, but in a in a exchanges there, I, th- I think it, it displayed the Alliance Party as being fairly airy, as you say. Uh, it didn't really have any substantive arguments. There, were, there was a lot of, oh, this is unbelievable. This is unacceptable. This is, this is, that's not an argument. Uh, th- that's just projecting notions of what Alliance doesn't like, because it means that they're not going to be in government very quickly, or they're not going to be able to do what they want to do in the Assembly. But it's not an argument of any principle or substance uh, against uh, the position of another party. What it's done quite effectively, I suppose, is it's tapped into
1: a sense of exasperation and frustration that politics in Northern Ireland don't tend to work very well. And, you know, you or I might look at it um, because we watch these things quite closely and we may say, well, Alliance's fingerprints have been all over that in recent years. Certainly have. But that's not the message uh, that they're portraying. And they're benefiting from that. They're benefiting from the idea that uh, unionism nationalism have been kind of locked in this uh, constitutional battle and that for that reason things haven't worked in Northern Ireland as well as they should do and you and I know that that is a kind of simplistic argument, but it does resonate at the at, at, uh, at, at some level well, and as in, the, in the Twitter
0: era sorry in the Twitter yeah. era that has a lot of power because it's words the people pick up uh, and simply repeat. Yeah, it, it, it's something that those little soundbites that just that everybody keeps saying over and over again as if they're true. Uh, doesn't make them true, but they can just be repeated constantly. And there is that sense that Twitter is the world. Uh, it's not. No. <laughs> very, very... <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was a bit emphatic. Well, anyway, if Alliance Party are hysterical uh, at this point in time, uh, they're going to be apoplectic tomorrow when... But let's say it's likely that the DUP uh, aren't going to nominate uh, a speaker or or approve of a speaker for the assembly, and basically, the assembly and the executive effectively won't be taking place for some time.
1: Yeah, and I mean that there's, there's a certain coherence to not nominating a speaker if you're not going to nominate a, a deputy first minister. Yeah, and um, you know why. Why do you want the the assembly to to sort of persist in some sort of shadow form? If I, I, uh, yeah,
0: I think there's there's two there's two things that that sort of tend to suggest it. The DUP won't nominate a speaker. One because they've already flagged it up. So if if they did nominate a speaker, there's lots of people out there say, ha, they listened to the the voices of reason, and they they were just being silly, and you know they're weak and We can roll them over now on everything else as well. So there's that issue of the DUP having made that suggestion public. They're going to have to stand over it and do it now. Otherwise, they are going to look weak. Um, And that is going to be a problem going forward for them on that score. The second aspect, and I think this was, uh, I think it was Paul Bradshaw uh, on Nolan or Crawley or one one of those shows, Um, said, well, we have to have a speaker nominated because then we can change the standing orders and we can uh, get these committees up uh, to scrutinize things. We can uh, introduce private members bills. That would create a whole nest of issues for the DUP, which when they're trying to keep singularly focused on the protocol and resolving that up front, would be a complete and constant distraction form? Yes,
1: yeah, so it would become a sort of a free-for-all where you're trying to circumvent um, the fact that there's no executive and steer things in the direction that you want to without any real kind of uh, scrutiny of a lot of these things uh, at, a, at, a, at an executive level. So, I mean, I don't really see how that's going to be viable in, in the near future anyway until yeah. the protocol is... Addressed, and I mean, there, there's also, you know, because I think we're going to move on to talk about what's happening in the protocol on, on a national level and a government level. So I, that's being driven by the perception that there's an impending, for 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 right or for wrong, it, it's being driven
0: by the the idea that there's an impending crisis in power I, sharing in Northern yeah, Ireland. I mean, sorry, no, after a week, we can say that pretty well. The executive or the, the election has left us largely where we were before the election. The Alliance Party's done quite well. Green Party, thank God, has disappeared um, uh, <laughs> it, it, for a while anyway. We're not really that much further on uh, it, politically in terms of the parties. They're, they're largely the same. SDLP had a lot of thinking to do. The Ulster Unionists ought to have a lot of thinking to do, but they didn't lose enough to make them have to sit down and think. And I don't know where they're going to go simply because they now have a an assembly party with a leader four ex-leaders and four people who've never been leader, which which is, how does that even sound as if it's a party going anywhere? Um, It doesn't,
1: um, yeah, it it doesn't have the appearance of a party that's developing into something hopeful and, uh, you know, potentially uh, a party that can deliver in the future. It kind of looks like a collection of uh, ideas that have been tried and and failed to be, Perfectly honest, yeah. I just you you know, I, I, again, uh, I, I've said this on a number of occasions. I'm I'm sort of relatively open to the idea that the Australian Unionist Party need to you know articulate a relatively socially liberal message, um, but also one that that's firm in the union. I think they've just. Yeah. Failed to pitch that at the right level, or or find the kind. Of, uh, perhaps they've not been able to balance the the unionist aspect of it with with the liberal aspect of it because they've been concentrating too much on on the liberal message. Um, and not that I'm I'm saying that there's anything wrong with trying to you know tap into that socially liberal strand. You know, at the moment it's a shapeless. I think it. it mess I think it can really be done. Anything.
0: I think it can be done. Unionism probably needs that uh, that that sort of liberal unionist party, but a liberal rather than liberal, not progressive, but a liberal party on
1: the side um, of personal freedom and, and people's freedom to live their lives as exactly. they wish to
0: live them. Exactly, oh. uh, and I think we need that. I just don't think they have the. I haven't listened, I haven't heard any anyone from within the Austrian Union being able to articulate that coherently yeah. there's been aspects of, of each and bits but nothing that's actually brought it together in a way that you can you can say there's something different there I think similarly by the way on the SDLP front they have got themselves into a real rut of not really knowing where they're going at the moment you had the attention when colonies who got elected as leader between the more the social democratic and labour end of the party, and then the, the sort of nationalist republican end of the party. And he's rather taking it down the republican end. And by the way, we don't like the DUP. Um, the SDLP probably needs to spend some time reflecting on its origins, which was, again, civil rights, liberties, that social democratic tradition, uh, which would have been very much a European social democratic Tradition, not particularly left, but off the left rather than left-wing. And they just seem not being able to pull those bits together, uh, trying to be something they can never be, which is basically like Sinn Fein, because they can never, nobody can ever be like Sinn Fein. No who would want to be like Sinn Fein in in any in any moral sense. Both the SDLP and the Austrian should be spending time seriously wondering about what they need to be in the future.
1: Yes, and the, the SDLP seem to work themselves up into um, you know, a state of optimism before the election just based on the fact that Colin Eastwood is quite an assured or polished media performer, but you've got to actually have a message that's worth communicating. Yeah, again, you know, the, the
0: media performance before the election thing. was very often clips from the House of Commons of rhetorical mm. camp being aimed at the Prime Minister, clipped into a tweet and sent out saying how we give it to them.
1: Well, I suppose I was thinking of, again, is is performances and uh, kind of pre-election debates and things like that. But once again, you know, people who are very focused on politics, people who follow politics closely, perhaps tend to make a big deal of these debates and, um, you know, encounters like that because they're the set pieces that yeah. precede an election, whereas... Most people aren't aren't even watching. I mean, when Sinn Féin's success on this occasion, or relative success, was more or less based on setting out a message early doors and then trying to keep out of the media spotlight, just basically refusing to do interviews. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: Sinn-, Sinn Féin have been part a long time. They've been getting registrations done, re-registrations because they did a lot of registration around the time of the that um, hundred. You had to be an electoral register, I think, to get that. Um, Pound voucher, pound voucher yeah. thing, and they made a lot of effort in getting people onto the list to get their hundred pound voucher. So I think that they've been doing work since before Christmas. Uh, others haven't. Um, I mean, I didn't see anybody out on any doors, either on the North Coast here or in Belfast. We, we
1: we had a canvasser from uh, Paul Gibbons' team at that. Oh, was, okay. Uh, the only the only person who arrived on our door, and and you know where we're in the relatively. Um, urban area, not out in the sticks or anything like that.
0: Um, So I guess it's what next for the Assembly. I think we've touched on that already. Um, Not Mm. a lot uh, without dealing with the protocol. I I think after Friday, we're going to have a meltdown from the Gang of Four about not being able to stand for all to see in the Assembly for a few months as the DUP bring the whole thing to a grinding halt, uh, because the protocol is the point. Uh, I think we maybe just spend a little time now at the end just talking about where is that going at the moment because we've been having such maybe we've got so used to simply the British government telling us they're about to do something and not doing it that this time we're a bit bored and we don't believe the British government are going to do anything. I don't know if you think that there's anything you know, substantial on the on the horizon.
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, I've I've been writing about this actually this morning, and I suppose the viewpoint that I'm putting across is that this rhetoric is some of the most sort of muscular that we've heard against the protocol. Liz Truss certainly seems to be talking in a serious way, but again, I mean, we've got to be cynical in in a sense about her intentions because she's got designs in the leadership and she's sort of looking at how her, her position is seen by the Tory grassroots and everything else, so there's that kind of angle to to take into consideration. But we, we've we've been here many times before, uh, David, because it it has appeared on multiple occasions that the government is at the brink of either triggering Article 16 of um, looking down the legislative route of doing something unilaterally, and then it is backed off at the last moment. And you know there are still elements in the government who are supposedly. Um, skeptical about the need to do something, or or they they're they're arguing the case to keep negotiating uh, with the EU, even though that hasn't to date achieved anything at all. Ne- neither kind of outcome would surprise would surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if this goes ahead, and I mean I quite like the briefings that we're getting in terms of uh, what trust intends to do, because um, supposedly we're hearing that uh, she wants to deal with the European Court of Justice and disapply uh, it, uh, European law in, in, in Northern Ireland so that we can, you know, uh, abide by British rules and regulations for, for goods that are staying here. And um, she, she wants goods from Great Britain that are staying in Northern Ireland to, to move without impediment. And Both those things are all that we've been asking from the very beginning. So if that was delivered, then all well and good. Um, but, I mean, even if there is some legislation, some movement from the, in terms of the government triggering Article 16 or whatever it intends to do, you have to see what the detail of that is before you can make any, uh, any determination on whether it will be effective, because we've been down this route so many times that we are justifiably, I think, cynical whenever we hear that there's a new initiative to put this right.
0: And I think we have to look at the obstacles. Um, so we look at them in three parts. The EU... Uh, is absolutist in terms of its notion of risk on the on the single market, and I haven't seen anything that suggests it is serious about making any changes. I, I know the Alliance Party and others make a big thing about, oh, they amended the medicines stuff, but actually, it's a three-year period of change, uh, and that is actually to allow medicines to move for the Republic, Cyprus, and Malta and Northern Ireland, uh, because. Uh, I I didn't know, and probably the EU didn't know either, uh, that uh, those three areas are are deeply set into the British procurement and approval system for for new medicines. It was something that was entirely of their self-interest within their member states that changed that medicine thing.
1: And actually, unless there's been a separate development on this that I have missed, That way of dealing with medicines, it doesn't extend to medical testing kits. It does
0: not, or equipment. It's simply the least they could do, which isn't really a great deal anyway, not when everything else has to be dealt with. Um, The second, obviously, is is where does the Irish government lie? The way the EU has been talking this past week about the future of the EU, um, I don't think smaller states really matter that much to it. Uh, because it's quite clear they want to go to a majority system where they can rule out the odd uh, small country that might object here and there. There's been a lot of suggestion by Neil Martin, that, the Taoiseach, that uh, in some way uh, there is a, a landing ground in view. I'm less clear on that, and i was using a quote today uh, from uh, Simon Coveney, uh, which doesn't really clarify much if, if they think it's a landing ground, because they seem to concede on the one hand that they do need to be able to differentiate between goods that are that might enter the single market and uh, those that can you know, can be proved to be staying in Northern Ireland. Um, but on the other hand, the absolutism comes back in almost immediately by talking about goods coming into Northern Ireland that may go through wholes- wholesalers or retailers um, and end up south of the border. That seems to just go back to absolutely everything needs to be checked. Anything that comes into Northern Ireland can ultimately be considered as possibly going across the border. You are know, labelling it only for only for consumption in Northern Ireland isn't going to stop, stop some housewife coming up from Dundalk and taking home a ready meal from from Sainsbury's, is it?
1: Yeah, well, this is the kind of legalistic thing that we keep running into. With the EU, because I mean we've gone over this again, ad and David. That volume of trade that's crossing the border is a tiny, a tiny proportion of uh, the trade that even the UK does with the with the rest of the EU. I think depends how you measure it, but it's between 0.5 and 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 one percent um, of the the total volume of trade. And that's UK to the EU. That's not EU trade or anything like that. So we're tra- talking about a tiny volume of goods in actuality. And yes, you're getting caught up in in this idea that a private person might buy something in Northern Ireland and then take it across the border and this will make the single market collapse. I mean, it's just the biggest load of nonsense. There are still ferries going from England into the Republic of Ireland. Those people's boots will not be checked in their entirety to make sure that they're not taking home a ready meal or a fridge or a microwave or whatever. The UK in any case has regulations and standards that are every bit as uh, rigorous as the European Union. And the fact that we are actually in this discussion as if this is a serious point that the EU are are making, uh, and the fact that that comes up all the the time in, in kind of mainstream discourse and you hear things about magical thinking and all the rest of it, it shows just how far down the rabbit hole we are with this kind of nonsense. Because the only reason that a solution to this isn't possible tomorrow morning is because the EU says it's not possible. And we've got Fari, this lamentable MP for North Down, uh, setting out this supposed Brexit trilemma where you can't square the fact that there has to be a border somewhere or else the UK has has to sign up to to EU regulations and customs customs laws in their entirety. It's a fabrication, it's a nonsense. It was born in Brussels, and there is absolutely no reason why the UK should be accepting this fallacious uh, logic, which makes no sense whatsoever, if you actually try and break it down, rather than just repeating what the European Commission and its mouthpieces are telling us on a regular basis.
0: Well, I think the other point is, of course, the Republic of Ireland is quite happy um, to set up controls in respect of fossil fuels, which they're going to be bringing in quite soon uh, to stop coal and, uh, and uh, fuels going uh, from north to south, despite us apparently being in the single market. But, you know, when, when it suits the Republic, they can uh, get uh, border controls quite happily that they said shouldn't exist on this island. So I think it, lectures from them need to be a bit uh, treated with a bit of uh, derision, really. The
1: Republic uh, of Ireland, when it suited the Republic of Ireland, whether it be foot and mouth, um, whether it was COVID and multiple other things they're quite happy to act unilaterally when it yes. suits them in terms of uh, in terms of border controls but when there's you know suggestions that there should be a camera at the border it suddenly becomes a great risk to peace yeah. and uh, to the belfast agreement and to everything else it's just again i mean it's risable that we accept this this uh nonsense
0: well i think when we're talking about accepting nonsense of course uh the EU were wholly surprised that the UK would accept this nonsense when they'd first put forward the idea of backstop, etc., to Theresa May. Uh, they couldn't believe that she had swallowed it, which I think brings us to the third part of the challenges uh, to the British government at the moment doing anything. And that comes from within the Tory party itself. You've got those ultra-remainers, I suppose, still lurking around in the in the Tory party not too many, but a few of them. But then you have this clatter of people around Theresa May who somehow think that she had the answer when in fact, she was the one that brought the whole idea of the backstop to the fore. And whilst in her head, she may believe it was in keeping with the Good Friday Agreement, that was only to justify the mess that she was creating. Her Brexit deal was going to create an intra-UK border every bit as much as the current protocol does. These things can be so complicated, so maybe it's easier just looking at it in a practical sense. One of the things the UK government is said not to have been able to do in in respect of reducing fuel costs was to reduce VAT on fuel because they would have been in the embarrassing situation of having to accept that they couldn't, under the current protocol, reduce VAT in Northern Ireland uh, because of uh, EU rules on VAT, et cetera. But equally under May's backstop, under her deal, basically that would have been a variation. Uh, and equally under her deal, you could not have reduced VAT across the UK as one. You could have only reduced it in GB, it has. We've often argued backstop, front stop. The only the only difference is sequencing, but the actual consequences ultimately would be exactly the same. Uh, the only difference, of course, may wanting them desperately uh, to keep uh, the UK close to the EU on all aspects of regulation.
1: I mean, I know it's hard to have paid attention to this whole saga, but I can't believe that with forgotten so quickly what the backstop actually consisted of or what it was for I mean the idea of the backstop was that it would kick in whenever Britain started to uh, diverge from yep. regulations and rules that were that, that were uh, set in the comment in, in the single market or to diverge from its uh, customs union which actually you know under Maysdale Northern Ireland was officially not a part of. Whereas while we are subject to EU customs law now, we are officially at least, as as meaningless as that may seem, in the UK uh, customs union. But I mean, it it was Theresa May's uh, own chief negotiator, Ollie Robbins, who let this out of the bag when he said that the backstop was a bridge to a new kind of customs relationship yeah, uh, with the EU. Now, whether you think that was a desirable thing or not, a Brexit name only or whatever else, from, for unionism, the relevant point was that all of that was predicated on Britain staying tied to the EU in these, uh, in these couple of major ways in terms of customs and regulations. So as soon as As another government had come in, as soon as Theresa May's uh, government had decided to take another route, and I mean, let's remember what the mathematics were in the House of Commons at that time. She was hanging on by a very, very slender majority. As soon as anybody took a different view, then all of these things, the Irish sea border, the single market regulations applying in Northern Ireland and not the rest of the UK, the checks, the customs forms, all of it, everything that was included in Boris's deal would have kicked in and applied to Northern Ireland. And if you're saying that unionists can't accept Boris's deal, you know, how could they possibly have accepted a deal that Theresa May came up with that comprised all these things anyway? It was just the fact that they were delayed rather than coming immediately. So this, this is, you know, once again, we're in the realms of people having convinced themselves of the most convoluted, nonsensical arguments.
0: Baffling. Totally, uh, but we are we are now. And the point is that we've got a pressure point in respect of no assembly, no executive. Threat to the institutions going forward in Northern Ireland, I think that's a fair point. Um, uh, if the Good Friday Agreement means anything, then people have to realise that there has to be consensus. It's no point in saying there's a majority for the protocol in the Assembly. There might well be, but there isn't a cross-community consensus for the protocol within the Assembly. Uh, and therefore, if if power sharing is to mean anything, then there has to be a, a movement on the protocol from the EU. If not, then the British government, which in law still governs this part of the United Kingdom uh, must take action. Yes.
1: And I mean, I, I feel, David, like you've um, done me a real disservice here because I can feel my blood pressure rising <laughs> as, as this podcast goes on. I mean, first you you sprang uh, Peter Andre's penis on me and uh, then we had... Oh, I, really, I really don't think <laughs> I did on. <laughs> the, 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 then we had the Alliance Party and, 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 and Theresa May, but... Again, in in terms of of power sharing in Northern Ireland, um, let's not pretend as well that things were working properly before the DUP decided that they were going to walk out of the the first minister's position in February, or that if uh, if the executive gets back, that it's going to do all this amazing work and tackle the health service and start doing all kinds of things that can't be achieved otherwise. I mean, the protocol is... This massive issue that's been hanging over us now, for uh, you know, was it was it 2017? Yeah, two years. The, well, two the, two the,
0: years from 2019, really, it's been there. It, it,
1: the it's been parts, in, it, yeah. it's it's been in, in place since 2019. But before that, we had the backstop, which yes. was something, um, which was something very similar. So this has been hanging over Northern Ireland politics, destabilizing it, for. Near, nearly five years, five years. Now, if, you, if you wanted to take it back to its origins uh, in the backstop. <laughs> We've got to get it sorted. And, you know, that, this kind of short term idea, you know, somebody might not be able to make an announcement or take up a mi- uh, a ministry that they that they really want, you know, for their own vanity, uh, but that achieves little yeah. anyway.
0: Well, I, th- I think the, the, it's the not important thing. in comparison yeah. to getting this broader picture sort of. The striking thing for me about the party leaders debates on UTV and then BBC, uh, which I have to say I never managed to get through to the end of either, the really striking point of that is there were five party leaders standing around there, and they were the five party leaders that would be part of government, so they could stand around that table and tear strips off each other. But as soon as the election was over, they were going to have to sit around the table and sort things out. You know, you all you were talking about was, you know shuffling the deck here we weren't talking about changing the pack we weren't actually talking about you know with who is going to lead after the election because frankly they were all going to be there and they've been there for 20 years and we've got nothing to show for it.
1: yes i mean and that's absurd and the other absurdity i believe is that the sdlp says that say that they're going to go into opposition to an executive which isn't going to be formed, in which they're sort of upbraiding uh, the DUP for not forming a well, part um, of, so and like like they
0: had a choice because they weren't going to be the executive anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. No, I mean, they're I
0: mean, making making a, a nobility out of necessity. I think on that score, uh, I mean, they weren't going to be in the executive. So, what? I mean, anyway, we, we. I think we have run ourselves into the ground with, with anger, frustration, and <laughs> and, and, and annoyance. This is the point at which the call needs sorted. I guess we've got six months before another election. Uh, maybe catch up before the summer and see if if things have moved uh, forward at all. Look forward to it, David. Cheers, on.